Would you turn with me to, to Nehemiah? We're going to read this passage in a moment. You don't need to uh, necessarily go to it right away, but we're, we'll go through it in a second. We're in the book of Nehemiah. We've been, we've been going through this series called Restored, Pursuing True Purpose. And um, the idea there comes right out of, out of the story of Nehemiah, that Nehemiah and the people's uh, goal was to restore the city, restore specifically the walls and the gates of the city in order for the city to re regain its previous uh, stability, its um, place in their society, uh, its place within God's purposes and plans for them. And there are three themes that we've seen weaved in and out of, this, of, of the story. We've seen the theme of calling, that the, the people are, have realized that, that they are called to something holy, that they're called to some purposes and plans for them. And whatever that plan is, whatever, however that is manifested, they understand that to mean that, that it's a holy calling, because it's God who calls them to that. They also have learned about what it means to be community, identifying uh, with each other as a family. Um, and uh, that just, just a titch. Um, identifying with one another as a, as a family of, of faith, as, as a community that they belong together. And we see that in the list. We see that in the, all of the names that we've read over these past few weeks. Um, long lists and um, trying, to, trying to figure out, okay, how do you pronounce that? How do you pronounce that? Well, why would they put all that stuff? Is they, they are concerned with being a community. We've also seen the theme of covenant. Calling, community, and the theme of covenant. They understand that they are a, a, a holy people, that they are a community of faith because of what God has done. Because of the covenant that he made with their people years and years and years prior and wants to see renewed in their time. That's what we're going to look at today in this passage, the idea or the theme of, of that covenant really comes out to the forefront right here in Nehemiah chapter 8. And we, we discover here that, that to understand the law uh, really changed, uh, changed their lives. It changed um, how they viewed themselves. It changed how they responded to other people. It changed their direction. We call that, as the River Church, transformation. We have a, a mission as a, as a church uh, to glorify God by making disciples and planting churches that transform, change lives, families, and communities how? With the good news of Jesus. With the good news of Jesus. We, to understand the law um, means a, a, a change is going to take place. A change in the people. A transformation in the people. Let's, uh, let's read, these, uh, let's read this, this passage together. I'll read it aloud and you can follow along with me in your Bibles or on the screen. Ne uh, Nehemiah chapter 8 uh, verses 1 to 12. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And behind him, beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maseah on his right hand, and Pedaiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. Whew. 
Don't worry, more names coming. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Yamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hadiah, Maseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense, so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, and to send portions, and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I ask you, um, to make these words come alive in our own hearts and minds. Uh, give us understanding as we, as we meditate on them, as we ponder the words and the meaning for our own lives today. God, I pray that uh, the message today will speak to each of us. Start with me, Lord, and confirm what you have been saying to me throughout this week. And then speak to each one here, young and old, that each will understand what you would have them to, to know and then will obey joyfully today as we go from here. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what can we learn from this? The first thing I want us to learn, I think we can understand, is to understand the law requires a humble attitude. To understand the law requires a humble attitude. Now, before we see what this humble attitude is and how it was represented in this, in this, in this particular story, what is the law? Have you, ever, have you thought about that? Have you read the Bible and, 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 or you heard this passage and you heard him talking about the book of the law of Moses and, and Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly and uh, he, they, they, they spoke or uh, helped them understand the law of God clearly. What is this law? What is the law? In, in the Old Testament, the law was the Torah. What we would refer to as the first five books of the Old Testament. Some people call it the Pentateuch. That means the book of the five. These, these books are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In our Bible reading plan right now, we're right in the smack dab center of or beginning, I should say, just on the early side of Numbers, the book of Numbers. We're working through uh, the law in our Bible reading plan as a church. So there, those, that, would, that would have been what they thought of when they thought of the law. But we also, we also heard Jesus refer to the law, didn't he? In the reading that you heard Chris say from Matthew chapter 5, that the words of the, 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 the law will not pass away that not an, an, an iota or a dot will be removed um, or it will all be fulfilled, right? And unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees in obedience to the law, then, then uh, you're, well, what did he say? You're missing it. <laughs> then your righteousness isn't righteousness, right? So Jesus referred to the law as well. What we can take from this is this meaning. The law was not only the first five books of the Old Testament, but it was also a shorthand. It became a shorthand way of expressing all of God's revealed, uh, re all of his revelation that was in the Old Testament. So 
So by the time Jesus was referring to the law and the disciples were referring to the law and the apostles were teaching about the law, they were thinking in terms of, of the whole category of all that God had revealed, everything that God had revealed. The law was the Old Testament books that they had. And they began to call it the writings in the New Testament. The writings, uh, uh, scripture is how we usually see that in our New Testament Bibles. Scripture. What do you think of as scripture? This whole thing, right? From Genesis all the way through to Revelation, that's what we think of as scripture. So we could, we could, we could take that understanding of the law, even though uh, Ezra was reading from arguably the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, for us it means something much greater than that. Because if that was the revelation of God to Israel and what God wanted them to know, now we have the entire Old Testament and the New Testament, the revelation from God that He wants us to know and us to understand. That's what's going on in the law. So how did they have a humble attitude? Because if you want to understand the law, if you want to understand God's Word, to put it that way, or you want to understand the Bible, it requires a humble attitude. Notice what they, what they did. They all gathered together as one man. So much could be said for that. The gathering together. When we gather in worship, that's what we're doing. We're gathering together as one, and we're here to be guided and directed by God's Word, by the Bible. So we're a people of the book. They all gathered together. They had Ezra, the scribe, and the priest come. Where does this Ezra guy come in? He's not just one of the, our, our little ones running around here, but Ezra is the first part of the story. Right before the book of Nehemiah is the book of Ezra. Ten chapters um, describing the, the rebuilding of the temple, which by the time Nehemiah came on the scene, the temple had already been rebuilt and already been completed, and Ezra was serving there. We don't hear anything about Ezra until this moment in Nehemiah. For the first seven chapters of Nehemiah's uh, writings, we don't hear anything about him. But now we hear Ezra. Ezra was there. And he was the one um, who was directing the spiritual life of the congregation as a priest and as a scribe. Somebody who, who understand and studied God's law, God's word. So he comes together and they all gather together. Notice who gathers together. Men, women, and all who could understand what they heard. What do you think that means? Men and women. Everyone's gathered together, including all who could understand what was heard. I take that to mean that, they, that Ezra, or the, the, the writer here, uh, adding to, to Nehemiah's uh, journal or memoir, um, the one writing this, um, speaking of Ezra and Nehemiah in the third person now, um, I take it to mean that he said it wasn't just the men who got together, and study the law, as was, was custom for the Jewish people, that only the men would, would study and dig in and, and really, you know, uh, learn the details of God's Word. But it was the women as well, and not only the men and the women, but all who could understand what was heard. It was the young people. It was, it was our students. It was our children, like Maddie. She was listening. She would have been standing there attentively listening to God's Word being preached because that's what they were doing. Men and women and all who could understand were listening to Ezra as he read from the law. Notice how long he read. Early morning till midday. Probably early morning meant, hey, get out of bed, get down there, the sun's up, you better get down to the water gate because that's where Ezra's going to be reading the law until about noon or 1 p.m. So he probably, sat, he probably stood there and read for about six hours. But what were the people doing? It says they were attentive. They were listening. Their ears were perked up. They, had, they, they, were, they, were, they wanted to know what was going on. They wanted to hear this. And Ezra was on a wooden platform. Some, some of the older translations say a pulpit. But it was really more, it's actually the word here that's used in the Hebrew is a word for a tower. Every other place in the Old Testament, it's translated as a tower. In other words, probably a very large 
platform in other, for that he could stand on and he could then look out over the people and everyone could see him and everyone could hear him. And, uh, and, it, and it must have been pretty large because beside him there were these six guys on his right hand and seven guys on his left hand. Don't ask me to explain that. That's 13. That number doesn't really mean anything in, in, the, in, in Hebrews' thoughts. It was like 13. That was like more than 12. Um, it's not, not quite right. Maybe it's 12 plus another one. I don't know. Um, but there were a bunch of men standing on both his right and his left. So it was, must have been a large platform, like a big old stage. And he's out there proclaiming. He's out there reading. And look what he does, because he's above all the people. He, everyone can see him. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And it's interesting that Ezra did, didn't say, um, all rise, or... Would you please stand with me as I read this? He, they, he opened the scroll. And the people must, I guess they were sitting somewhere. I don't know. I don't know if they had chairs or not. But they all stood. They said, this is God's word. We ought to stand. We don't often, I don't invite you all to stand when we read from the Bible very often, do I? Pretty much, you see, eh, hey, relax, it's okay, you can sit, I'll read, it's all, it's all good. That way, Anna, everyone can see the screen, everyone can see up there through, you know, find a face and no one's blocking anyone's view and all that. Um, but I think there is something about our posture of worship that's pretty important. A posture of, of standing, a posture of, oh, look at verse 6, of lifting their hands, Remember, the, the, you know the song we sing um, fairly often? Um, I stand, or we stand and lift up our hands, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. I want to know where that comes from. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? Verse, verse uh, 5, they stood. Verse 6, lifting up their hands. Verse, uh, verse was it uh, 10? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Um, we stand, we raise hands, but then look what they did next. Then they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. What does that mean? They, well, okay, so we bow our heads. We do that when we pray, right? We bow our heads and we put our faces to the ground. But the word worshiped in verse 6 is not just a, 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 a an inarticulate or um, impre uh, imprecise word, an, an abstract word that we think of that's like an idea. We think of worship as an idea. Like maybe something that goes on in our minds or something that we feel or maybe worship is, it's that first 15 to 20 minutes of our gathering time when we're actually singing and we say, well, that's worship. Wasn't the worship good today? You know, we say that. Our testimony time is a time of worship. Our scripture reading is a time of worship. The fact that you're listening attentively to the message is worship. Uh, worship is all of that. But, in, in verse 6, and in the Old Testament, the idea of worship was to bow down, to prostrate oneself. To get on the ground, knees on the ground, face on the ground, laying on the ground. Have you seen, um, have you seen our, uh, the uh, uh, Muslims uh, in their prayer time? They will roll out their mat, they will, they will kneel down, and they will literally bow their head touching their face to the ground in front of them, hands up in front of them, touching the ground. You s you've seen pictures like that. Um, well, <laughs> they're not that far off from what, what was going on in the Old Testament times. When the, in the Old Testament they talked about worship, that's what they were talking about, prostrating oneself. What does that mean for us? Do you pray like that? <laughs> we don't... We don't uh, really, it's, it would be really inconvenient to bow in our places of worship with chairs sitting out, lined up like that. Um, that it wouldn't really work too well. I guess you could turn around and kneel down and, you know, put your hands and your elbows on the chair that you're sitting on. 
in order to bow? I suppose you could do that. But what would it mean for us? What would it mean for us to have a, a, a position of worship? A posture of worship. Standing, sitting, kneeling, bowing, and maybe doing that in, in all kinds of areas of our lives. There's a position of worship here that, that indicates a humble attitude. Notice uh, one other thing, too. Where were they located? Did you notice where they were located? Because we usually think of worship as something that happens in like a holy, like a sacred place, or at least a designated area where we, we all gather together. We, go, we come to the community center to worship. That's where we're going to do our worship gathering. And where was the place of worship for the people in Nehemiah's time? Well, Ezra had helped them and urged them to rebuild the temple. They had a temple. Why weren't they gathering in the temple? Why weren't they there worshiping in the temple? Why didn't they have the reading of the law at the temple where everyone could gather together and they could see this, this example of God's glory and His greatness right there in their midst? Well, a couple of reasons. One of, one of them is that they wanted the women and, and the children to be present in that time of worship. To hear the, the law for themselves. And, and in the Jewish uh, re rituals or, or religious culture, um, only the men could go into the, the temple area and worship there. The women had to remain outside. So that wasn't practical. So instead of going to the temple, they went to the square before the water gate. They went into a public place. They went into a place where they could gather as many people as possible to hear this word. And it was like this. They were saying, you know, uh, we can worship in the temple and we're going to continue to worship in the temple. But God is greater than the temple. In fact, he's, He has made this whole, this whole city a holy place. And, and we've, we've, now we've rebuilt these walls. The walls and the gates are up. And now the city represents a, a holy place to God. And, and it reminds me of, it reminds me uh, this, this idea of a place of worship that is not just restricted to one holy place. It reminds me of what Jesus said to uh, a woman uh, when he, that he met at a well. In John chapter 4, he meets this woman and he has a conversation with her and she wants to know, well, where should we worship? She was of, a, uh, she was, uh, of the Samaritan uh, tribe, or not really a tribe of Israel, but she was part of that culture. She was part of that nationality, that ethnic group. And Jesus was a Jewish man. And, and the Samaritans said, well, we worship on this mountain in this place. And you Jews worship in another place on a different mountain. So which, which should it be? Let's, talk, let's have a religious discussion. Let's debate this. And Jesus said, uh, lady, uh, time is coming when, when where, where we worship isn't going to matter so much. It, what's going to matter is, that, is who we're worshiping. That we're worshiping the Father. And that we're worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. The place here in Nehemiah chapter 8 is, uh, is, is worth our attention. Because it reminds us that God can be worshipped anywhere we gather together. Anywhere. We don't have to have a special building for that purpose. We can worship in a community room. We can worship in a school. We can worship in a park. We certainly can worship in buildings designated um, by the church for its use. But to understand the law requires this kind of a humble attitude that wherever we go, wherever we are, our posture is paramount. Whatever the place is, our posture means so much. Notice what the people did there. They raised their hands, they bowed their heads, they worshipped, they prostrated themselves with their faces to the ground. And then they were assisted to understand the law. They listened, they learned. Verse 8, they read from the book 
from the law of God clearly. They means the Levites, those who were helping Ezra. I think what happened was Ezra was up there reading and he was speaking all of these words and they were, they were, there was a huge crowd there. And a lot of people in the back, they couldn't hear what was going on. And some of them were like, he's, he's, he's reading from the law in Hebrews. Or in the Hebrew language. <laughs> and I don't understand the Hebrew language anymore. Because I lived, my, my family um, moved to uh, Assyria or moved to Persia. And we learned a different language. And, and I'm not familiar with that. How many of you would understand what I was saying if I pulled out my Hebrew Bible and I read from it? None of you. Not even me. I wouldn't understand it either. I'd have to take a lot of time and have some dictionaries to help me figure it out. But, but the Levites said, we will help. We will help the people understand. We'll translate it if they need it translated. We'll explain it if they need it explained. So they, they did that. They read clearly. They gave the sense so that in verse 8, the people understood the reading. It wasn't just that they were people who had the cognitive ability to hear men, women, and children, but they actually now understood what it actually meant. Um, I, uh, I, I, uh, when I think about having a humble attitude, especially when it comes to learning, I think of all of the mandatory training I've gone through over the years. When I was in the military on active duty, we had mandatory training of some kind all the time. They said, you got to do this one class. You got to go to this one course. You got to go online and you, you got to do this, this you know, learning module. And you got to do this, you got to do that. And what was the typical attitude? Uh, the typical attitude was, I don't need that. I already know it. I don't want to hear it. So um, I thought, oh, now that I'm off of active duty, I'm not going to have that kind of stuff anymore. And then I get into a church planting network and they say, Hey, um, you're required to come do this training. <laughs> or you're required to go to this, this church planting retreat. And we think, oh, it's going to be an encouraging time, rest, relaxation. And the first thing they do is, okay, I want you all to get a po piece of poster board and a marker. And I want you to spend time um, sharing, talking about all the things that aren't going right in your church plant. And I uh, thought, oh, no, really? Is that what we're going to do now? In fact, I've ran into some folks in some of those, some of those training um, locations, other, other people who are planting churches or, or in ministry somehow, and you can see it on their face, and you can hear it when you're talking to them, that they're just there because they're required to be there. <laughs> it's mandatory, and so I'm here. I thought about that. Do I sometimes have that kind of attitude in which I go to receive training but I don't have a humble attitude? I'm not there to learn. I'm not there to, re to receive. I'm not there to be open. Do we do that when we go to God's Word? If you, if you spend any time reading God's Word, you'll find that some of it's very difficult to understand. And even the stuff that we do understand, we don't want to do. To understand the law, and not just to understand it cognitively, but understand it in our hearts, requires a humble attitude. It would be like this, to pray a prayer something like this. Something that I try to remember to pray every time I go to the Word, and usually fail to remember. Um, but I remind myself of this over and over. God Give me a humble attitude. Help me to be humble as I read your word. Because it's your word, it's your voice speaking to me. You have something here for me to understand. I will never understand it until I have a humble attitude. They had a humble attitude. They were learning. They were, they were hearing the word. But they found that, or we, and we find that, to understand the law requires not just a humble attitude. That's not enough. Just to have a humble attitude. Okay, we've got a humble attitude. But to understand the law also requires a broken spirit. To understand the law requires a broken spirit. Look with me briefly at verses 9 and 10. Nehemiah is there. And again, he's spoken of in the third person, which indicates somebody else has written this portion of the book and, and compiled it in with, 
Nehemiah's memoirs. But Nehemiah's there, Ezra's there, and the Levite's there, and they say, This day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. Because what was happening? For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Why would they do that? They wept when they heard the words of the law. They were hearing Exodus read, or Numbers read, or Leviticus read. Whew, man, we got through Leviticus last month. That's a tough book to get through. When you're reading about all the ceremonial laws, um, it's hard to understand how someone would hear that and then be broken by it and weep and, and mourn. But the people did that. They were mourning, they were weeping when they heard the law. They were confronted with, with God's word. They were confronted with God's way of doing things. And they realized, we're not doing that. That's not what my life is like. I don't live like that. We're not, we're not obeying like that. Um, this, the law shows us God's intentions for us, God's plans, God's purposes. And then we get confronted by that with a humble attitude. And we go, oh my goodness. I'm not like that. I'm not living like that. I wonder if we would have a broken spirit more often if we actually had a humble attitude. It's an expression of need. A broken spirit is an expression of need. When we hear that, we, we think, I need something in my life to heal my brokenness. To heal the brokenness that I'm experiencing, that other people are experiencing, that makes me mourn, that makes me weep. When I was, um, I was thinking about my, my own personal testimony this week. I was thinking about when I came to faith in Christ. And for me, that was when I was a, a, a young child, around six years old. And when I was around six years old, um, I distinctly remembering um, my parents um, talking with me about Jesus. And I remember going to my parents, um, probably one evening, it was near bedtime, and saying, I want to give my life to Christ. I want to be saved too. And having my dad and mom kneel with me beside my bed, explain um, how I can be saved, and then leading me in that prayer. And it was a long time ago. I was young. I was younger than anybody here, well, save for Judah. Um, but I was, longer, I was younger than all of you young people. And I remember thinking back, uh, looking back going, what really happened there? I mean, some people have these testimonies of, of where they, they do awful things or they experience awful things. And, and then they have this saving experience when they're a teenager or when they're a young adult or when they're an older adult. And, and they, they look back and they say, man, my life before Jesus was just a mess. And then now Jesus has, has healed me. Now Jesus has, has saved me. Now Jesus has set me on a new course. And I think, man, I, I, was, I was so young. So what is my story? I realized my story is need. Even as a six-year-old boy, I, I recognized that I needed Jesus. That there was sin in my life. That I was disobedient to my parents. That I was mean to my siblings. That I lied. That I cheated. That I got angry. That I did all of these things as a child um, and I realized I needed a Savior. I wouldn't have described my experience of being broken over my sin, um, but the root is the same. I needed Jesus. I needed what only He could give me. And then as I've grown, and as I've, I've grown from then, and as I've matured and gotten older, in both uh, physically, um, emotionally, uh, and, as, and spiritually, I continue to recognize my need for a Savior. I continue to be broken when I'm confronted with God's law. Maybe we could pray a prayer like this. God, not only give me a humble attitude, but God, show me my need for you. Show me my sin. 
Show me my brokenness so that I will, I will see that I need you desperately every day, every hour even. But it's not enough because just to have a humble attitude um, or to have a broken spirit. If, we, if it was enough to just have a broken spirit, we would not be what we are today on this side of the Reformation, part of the church that, that glories in the gospel of Jesus. We would be, we would be doing penance. <laughs> we, would be, um, we would be abasing ourselves constantly. We would be setting up greater and greater laws in our lives, putting more and more laws in place to help us um, to, to keep from sinning, to keep from disobeying, because our, all of our concentration would be on our brokenness and on our sin, and that's all we would think about day in and day out. But that's not what Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites said to do. They said, go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. When they were gathering together for this purpose of reading the law, it was at a significant moment, a significant time in their calendar during the year. It was a time that, the, that way, way back in the time of Moses that had been set aside for a day of celebration, for a day to have joy in the Lord. And they read the law, but they, they, only, they only saw that the law was, it was telling them how much they needed God. And they were just, they were broken by that. And Nehemiah, Ezra, the Levites said, don't stay there. Don't just be grieved. Don't just be broken in your understanding of the law. Because if you really want to understand the law, it requires joyful obedience. Go do it. Go live it out. Go enjoy the freedom that comes from understanding the law. Because even in, even in Nehemiah's time, the people understood that, that, that God was there to give them salvation. God was there to give them forgiveness. That they would come with their brokenness, but they'd come in worship and they would offer the sacrifices that were prescribed by Moses and that their sins would be taken care of. They would be removed from them and God was doing that. And it was an act of faith to, to joyfully obey that, knowing that God was the one um, to take away their sins. Now at this time, they didn't have Jesus, did they? They didn't know Jesus. They didn't understand what the ultimate point of all of those sacrifices were. What, all, what the ultimate point and the purpose of all of that was for. They didn't have Jesus. They didn't have His ultimate atonement. We can look back and go, well, what did they really have to be joyful about? The writer of Hebrews helps us with that. <laughs> In Hebrews 11, he says, By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. By faith, Rahab. By faith, the Israelites. By faith, everybody in the Old Testament came to God, put their faith in Him, trusted Him that, okay, if I obey, by faith, if I obey, God will give us His joy. And that will be our strength. That will be the thing that we depend on. That will be what keeps us strong and, and helps us not to mourn and grieve over our brokenness. Really, joyful obedience is the purpose of the law. It, we don't understand, we cannot understand the law until we actually walk in it. C.S. Lewis used to use this illustration, and I love it so much. He described a time he went into his woodshed. It was dark in his woodshed. The doors were closed. There was no, no electric light in there. Um, it was a dark woodshed, but it was a very sunny, beautiful day out. And as he, as he walked into that woodshed and the door shut behind him, he noticed a beam of sunlight coming out from a hole or a crack, a, a fairly significant crack in the door or the frame of that woodshed. And it was shining in. And he couldn't really see anything else in the woodshed 
but that light. Have you ever been in a, in a situation where it's so dark, but yet there's just one little beam of light, maybe from a flashlight? You can't see anything else, but you can see that one beam and whatever it's illuminating, right? And he was standing there looking, uh, looking at the beam, traveling down in front of him. And he thought, wow, that's an amazing beam of light. It really illuminates whatever the light touches. And you could see like little dust particles floating through the beam, right? And he could sit there and, and examine it and look at it and try to come to an understanding of this beam of light. But if he did that, he would be missing out on its purpose. For him, he discovered that if you not only look at it, but you look along it. In other words, you put your eye up to the beam and you look outside. You can see that that beam is revealing a world. Trees, leaves, the sky beyond, clouds rolling past. And he said, that's what, that's what real understanding is like. For him, it was, it, was, it was the understanding that comes from knowing God through his, his, his law. We can look at it all we want from the side. And we can do that with God's Word too. We can look at it and, and we can study it and we can read books about it and you can buy the study Bibles that are so doggone helpful and you can get so immersed in reading the notes and the introductions and the commentaries and all of that stuff and you miss walking in it. You miss the joyful obedience that comes from humbling yourself before the Word and being broken by it and then obeying it. Would we be people that just don't just look at, that understand it, that try to, try to analyze it and explain it? But we'd be people that actually get into the stream, get into the beam itself experience it, look along it, and see everything and understand everything else by it. That's what, that's what he wanted, uh, that's what God wants us to do with his word, with the Bible. And that's what I think the Levites and, the, and Nehemiah and Ezra were trying to do with the people. Don't be grieved. This is a holy day. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You have the strength to obey. Through the Lord. He gives us that joy so that we can joyfully obey, that we have the ability, we have the strength to go along. We've, I've given you a couple of suggestions for prayer. God, give me a humble attitude. God, show me my sin, my brokenness, my need of you. But also, God, give me strength. Give me joy. Ask for that. The joy, the strength to actually walk in God's Word. To actually experience it and to live it day in and day out. They all went their way, it says in verse 12, and they obeyed. They did what they were, they were called to do and they, were did, they did what the law had called them to do on that day of the year. To go and celebrate. To eat. It said to... To eat the fat meant to eat the really good foods, the rich foods, the foods that were, that were yummy, the foods that, that indicated that it was time to celebrate. It wasn't just your, 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 your staple of food. It was, we're going to feast. We're going to celebrate. To drink sweet wine is, is a, a couple of two or three words to describe one word. It meant to just drink what was good. To celebrate, to have a good time, whether wine is involved or not is, is up to you, but to go and eat, to go and drink. And it says to send portions, to make great rejoicing. What, is the, what were the portions? They knew, we found out in, in Nehemiah chapter 5, there were some people who had and some people who had not. And the people who were the, the have-nots were being taken advantage of, Right? And the, the law said very clearly, those of you who have much share with those who have little. Don't let anybody miss out on the celebration. So they did. They obeyed. They were generous. They were gracious. Because why? 
because, in verse 12, they had understood the words that were declared to them. I'd like to challenge us as a people. I'd like to challenge us as a people to understand the law, to understand the Bible in a way that we've never understood it before. To commit to making the Bible central to our lives, to central to our experiences. In your bulletin, you, uh, you should have seen this little, little scrap of paper, little quarter sheet paper. It's called, at the title, it, it says, Seven Arrows of Bible Reading. Some of our, in fact, some of our discipleship groups use this very tool to walk through the Bible when they study together. I want to challenge you to take that, because everyone has one, and those of you, you, you young people too, you students and young ones, you can take it too. I want to challenge everybody, all who have understanding, those of you who can read, you qualify if you can read, and you can take this, this and use this as a tool to help you understand the Bible to understand what you're reading. Read a passage. I could do this with ne Nehemiah chapter 8. I read Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 12, and then I say, what does this passage say? And I could summarize it. Well, it says that all the people gathered together, that Ezra read to them, that he was on a platform, that it was men, women, and all who could understand. Boy, you could go, you could write a lot of stuff if you just summarized in your own words, what does this passage say? What did this passage mean to its original audience? Well, what did the Jewish people think when they read this? What, did ne what was going on in, with Nehemiah and Ezra and the, and the people at that time? And you might have to find some help for that because that might be hard to, to discern. But the more you study, the more you'll learn um, how to discover what it might have meant. What does this passage tell us about God? Well, it means it, it definitely tells us God wants to be worshipped, that He should be worshipped in, in a, a, a posture of... of, of praise, of, of saying amen, of standing, of kneeling, of bowing, and um, that he's a pretty big deal, that he makes, this day, uh, makes holy days, that he uh, gave the law, um, that he provides strength. What does this passage tell us about man? It tells us that when we read God's word, we are broken, we get broken by it, that we need him, right? What does this passage demand of me? That's a good question. What does this passage demand of you? Does it demand that you take more attention to God's Word in your life? Does it demand that you start thinking differently about it so that you look at God's Word as a source of joy in your life rather than a source of, or just a, an exercise in religion? How does this passage change the way I relate to people? Are there people around me who are the have-nots? Maybe they have less of God's Word, less understanding. Or maybe they have less of just a lot of other things that I have more of. And maybe that's something in, from verse 12 that God would demand of us. How does this passage change the way I relate to people? Very similar. Or I, did I just say that? What does the passage prompt me to pray? How does the passage prompt me to pray to God? Maybe it prompts us to pray like this. God, give me a humble attitude. God, show me my sin and my need for you. God, give me strength to obey and the joy of your salvation. Maybe you should prompt us to pray like that. This is a tool. It's a tool. I want, I want to challenge you to take the seven arrows and read God's Word for seven days this week, starting today. How about today? This afternoon, this evening, before you go to bed? And every day this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Um, today is the first day of the month. And so, out on the table, um, we have... Uh, four bookmarks. Bible, Bible reading challenge bookmarks. There are different colors to represent or to kind of go with the different parts of the Bible that you're reading. If you've not read from that um, this week or this, this year so far, that's fine. Why don't you grab a bookmark, look at something that, find one of them that looks, looks kind of interesting. You know, one of them starts in Numbers 8, May 1st, today, Numbers 8. One of them starts May 1st, Song of Songs, Chapter 6. Song of Songs is a good book to read um, when, you're, when you're married. Um, June, uh, sorry, I flipped that over. Um, uh, May 1st in the New Testament, Hebrews Chapter 6. 
<coughs> just jump right in midstream in Hebrews. Or, or um, in uh, uh, the, other, the other track one of the New Testament, which actually also includes Psalms. Psalm 44. Just jump right into Psalms. Read the Psalms for seven days. Who'd be willing to take that challenge with me? Seven arrows for seven days. Challenge. Try it out and see what God does. See what God does. Matthew chapter 7 is the conclusion of, a, of, a, of the Sermon on the Mount that, begin, that, that began with Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talking about the law. And in chapter 7, he says this to his final words to the people in this message where he explain, explained the law and what it meant for kingdom people. He said this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Obedience. That's what he's talking about. Obedience. Not just knowing it, not just hearing it, but obeying it. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Can I challenge you with that? To have a humble attitude, to have a broken spirit, to have or experience and walk in joyful obedience? That's understanding. That's understanding. And it comes when we humble ourselves before the Lord. We ask Him to do what only He can do through us. We uh, look not to obedience to the law for our salvation, but in Christ we look to Jesus for our salvation and for the strength that comes, the Holy Spirit indwelling power that comes from, from putting our faith in Jesus in order to understand what he wants from us in God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help us today. Walk with us. God, um, use the Bible in our own hearts. Cause us to draw closer to you. Cause us, Lord, to see um, your word as a source of of strength and joy for our lives, day in and day out, that God, you would do that work in us, that we would not see it as something to earn your, your approval or something to gain um, uh, uh, our salvation, um, but that we would see it as what it is, the joy of the Lord, the strength that you provide. I pray, God, that you'll do that for us today in your name. Amen.